where we're going to take a, a little bit of a journey today through the New Testament. Turn with me to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, last chapter in the Bible, and this marks our final sermon here at Young Street, this gathering place. Next week we'll go from being the believers who gather at Young Street to those who gather on White Lane. We are following a very long and rich history of God's people adjusting to God's work in the church. Next Sunday's morning's uh, inaugural service will be focused exclusively on the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll sing the cross, we'll pray of the cross, we'll preach the cross. The cross is the central focus of our faith, and so we will begin our stay at White Lane doing our best to give all glory to Christ, to fulfill Colossians 1.28, that Him we proclaim. But this week, and for most of the Sundays during the summertime, as I introduced last week, I'm doing a series I'm simply calling Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions. And this is, in part at least, an attempt to kind of get all of us on the same page with some critical theological issues and to engender unity of thought and belief from the Word of God. That is part of the purpose of shepherding, is to teach all of you to think alike, to think scripturally and to think um, in unity. And so today, I'd like to address the question, it's probably in the top five questions I ever get as a pastor, are we in the end times? Are we in the end times? This is a very natural question for us. We've observed our world growing more evil exponentially in the past few years. We used to read about mass shootings once a week, now we, once a year, now it's once a week. And of course, the problem is obviously misdiagnosed. The problem is not guns. The problem is not policy. The problem is sin. Always has been. We live in a world where it used to be interesting to watch the news. Now it terrifies us. Now we just say, come soon, Lord Jesus. And so there is a longing for Christ to return. There's a longing for Him to set up His kingdom. There's a longing for us to enjoy a truly righteous earth with God being perfectly just and perfectly powerful in visible form. We long for this. So the question is, are we in the end times? Should we expect the rule of Christ on earth in the near future? As we look at the news, does that indicate to us that something's about to happen? Now we're going to take some time to get to the answer to that question. So I think the best thing we could do is to establish a context to answer that question. And we'll do this by examining what Scripture says is coming for certain. And to do that, I thought we'd be a little creative. I'd like to work our way backwards from the beginning, or from the end, toward the beginning. And so we're going to do this a little bit backwards, and what I'm going to do is label every major era of prophetic history beginning at the end. We'll number them backwards. So here we go. The sixth era of prophetic history, the new heavens and new earth. The sixth era of prophetic history, the new heavens and new earth. To open the ending chapter of the Bible, the Apostle John is given the view of a city, a glorious city. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Just from these five verses, we see that this city has a river. This river flows from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb, Jesus Christ the Savior. We see now the original tree of life from the Garden of Eden and it's been expanded. It's all over the city. We see nations implying a new world order which includes distinct nationalities and ethnicities. We see that the curse of sin has now been eradicated. And we see that the saints of God, God's people from every age, are fulfilling God's original intent for mankind going all the way back to Genesis 1, and that is to reign with Him on a perfect earth. And what is this city? Revelation 21, verse 10 And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the rest of Revelation 21 gives a precise and a glorious description of this city, New Jerusalem, somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 miles wide, long, and high. It has now come down out of heaven. But the question is, will it come down to the current sinful and sin-ridden earth as we know it. No, it will not. Chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What got redemptive history to that point of the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven? What, What got us there? Christ has been reigning on earth prior to that final state and he's given as a gift to his father the ultimate gift, a pure and purified kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And just how will Christ destroy death itself? Well, obviously, for the believer in Christ, he has destroyed death at the cross. We mock death, according to Scripture. We say, oh, death, where is your sting? We say, nya, 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 to death because of Christ. But what is Christ's final work in destroying death in total, of judging death itself? How is Christ going to finally rid the creation of the scourge of death? The sixth era of prophetic history, the new heavens and new earth. The fifth era of prophetic history we'll call the great white throne judgment. We name it this because it's a judgment at a great white throne. So it's the great white throne judgment. Verse 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. John five twenty seven tells us this judge is Christ. It is the Lord Jesus. And this judgment has several important features. 
throughout the rest of chapter 20. Verse 13 says that all the unsaved dead from all the ages are raised up. They're resurrected to receive judgment. We also see that there's no place for them to hide. Earth and sky fled away. What does this mean? It means that we're in the time between the melting down and the purifying of sinful creation and the remaking of new heavens and new earth. Chronologically, the new heavens and new earth come after this judgment in chapter 21. And so we're in this in-between time. And this judgment is according to the works of the ungodly. The books are open, containing the heavenly record of every sin, every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed, ever committed by every single person who is not of the elect, those who have rejected Christ as Savior. And remember how 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here it is, chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Hades is the, the waiting place for the unsaved dead until they are thrown into the lake of fire, often called hell in the New Testament. But what was happening before the great white throne judgment? The sixth era, the new heavens and new earth. The fifth era, the great white throne judgment. The fourth era of prophetic history, the reign of Christ on earth. The reign and the rule of Christ on earth. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority of the judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So Christ is on the earth. Recently martyred saints are resurrected. We are with the Lord. We've already died and been resurrected, so we're with the Lord as well. And He reigns for a thousand years. What will Christ's kingdom on earth be like? I'd love to take a whole day just to talk about that, but I'll just give you a few highlights. First of all, the fact of Christ's reign as being literally on the earth is entrenched in pretty much every prophecy of this millennial kingdom. That is an integral part. Christ is on the earth. This is not a spiritual reign that's happening in heaven. As our amillennial brothers and sisters like to believe, Christ is not ruling spiritually from, from heaven now and that we're in somehow the kingdom state. If this is the kingdom state, this is the most disappointing kingdom ever. No, He will rule on the earth. That is unmistakable in Scripture. He's here. Justice will always be done. Everyone will always be cared for. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Can you imagine that? A judicial system that works. The presence of Christ will create peace in the creation. Isaiah 11, 6 through 8 says that even the animals will get along. Nationalism will be purified and ruled over by Christ. Zechariah 14 describes the nation of the world, nations of the world coming to worship Christ. In fact, Isaiah 2, verse 2, describes a, a constant flow of international guests in and out of Jerusalem, and that topographically, Jerusalem will now be the highest point on earth. Goodbye, Mount Everest, and hello, Jerusalem. 
And because Christ's kingdom will also include mortal survivors of the previous time of Antichrist's short rule on earth, Isaiah 2.4 says that Christ will settle all disputes between those not yet glorified. There will be a total lack of war, a total lack of national conflict. The end of Isaiah 2.4 says they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You won't need weapons. You won't need keys. Why do we have keys? We have keys because of sin, right? Think about it. Keys are to keep bad people out of stuff that you own. Christ's kingdom on earth will consist of two types of people. The resurrected citizens of which will be a part and the mortal citizens. But there will be, even they will be under tremendous blessing of God the time in which Isaiah 65.20 says that Jerusalem will be, for the first time in history, permanently at peace. This will be a time when the descendants of the survivors of the Antichrist time who do rebel against God, they'll be judged by dying very young. Isaiah says they'll die at the age of 100. What does that mean? It means that God will extend long life to true believers like before the flood where even the mortals are living hundreds and hundreds of years, even before receiving their resurrection bodies. Isaiah 65.20 says that Christ will end infant mortality. Every baby conceived by the descendants of the survivors will live and survive, every one of them. Isaiah 35 describes at least a partial refreshing of the creation with the wilderness areas now looking like lush, watered gardens with roses and greenery. Goodbye, Sahara Desert. Isaiah 35 verse 5 describes a time that is disease-free, disability-free. The eyes of the blind are open. The deaf hear, the disabled will walk. But what happened to set up Christ's kingdom on earth? We have the new heavens and new earth, the great white throne judgment, the reign of Christ on earth, the third era of prophetic history we'll call the return of Christ and earthly judgments. The return of Christ and earthly judgments. Revelation 19, verse 11. And we'll just walk through this quickly. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. He has eyes like a flame of fire. His name is written that he has that no one knows but himself on his head are many diadems he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood he has a name which is called the word of god verse 14 describes the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure following him on white horses that's us and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations what does that mean that with a word he will strike down his enemies he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god In verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The resurrected saints of the church age are with him as he returns. According to Daniel 12, verse 2, this is now when Old Testament saints will be resurrected as well, those with a genuine faith in God. Revelation 9, Revelation 16, Zechariah 14, describe the return of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon the final battle in which Christ will destroy all of his enemies. But what happens then? What happens at that point? Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. We continue kind of a tour backwards here. Matthew 24, and look with me at verse 30. Matthew 24. What's going to happen next? 
Matthew 24, verse 30, and we'll be in Matthew 24 and 25 for a bit here. Matthew 24, verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The whole world will see Him coming. Revelation 11 and Revelation 12 says that the horrific rule of Antichrist will be for 1,200 years. And 60 days, the last half of, of the tribulation, uh, more specifically that last half called the Great Tribulation. 1,260 days, three and a half years. But Daniel 12, verse 11 indicates 1,290 days. There's 30 days unaccounted for there. What is the only thing in Scripture that makes sense to fill in those 30 days? The viewable, observable, watchable return of Jesus Christ. Revelation 6 says that the greatest men on earth will hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb of God and they know it's coming. How? Because they can watch it in the sky for 30 days. What's happening for a month? Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And after Christ has destroyed all the armies arrayed against Him, He will gather all the people who have survived on earth including those who have recently come to faith in Christ. Matthew 24, 31, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is the gathering of all the surviving elect and coming together with all of us from the church age who have returned with Christ. And now the great earthly judgments take place. Matthew 25, 1 through 12, Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins invited to a wedding. Five were wise and five were foolish and were shut out. This is a judgment specific to surviving Jews. Some will enter the kingdom of Christ, those who had a genuine faith of him in him, and some will be shut out of the kingdom. Matthew 25, verse 31. This describes the Gentile judgment of all the survivors. 2531, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And the criteria of judgment throughout the rest of chapter 25 is to see if the lives of each individual demonstrated salvation status. That the truly saved are marked by humility, by selflessness, by love. But all those whose lives demonstrated and proved that they rejected the offer of salvation in Christ. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And in that moment... In that glorious moment when God executes judgment on all the surviving unbelievers left over, all that will be left on earth will be the resurrected righteous of the Old Testament, the resurrected saints of the church age, and the resurrected saints saved during the tyranny of Antichrist, along with the saved yet still mortal survivors of the time of Antichrist tyranny. For the first time in all of history, every single person on earth person on earth will be a believer in Christ. Everyone. New heavens, new earth, great white throne judgment, the reign of Christ on earth, the return of Christ and earthly judgments. 
the second era of prophetic history, the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation, this is the time of great suffering on earth under both the judgments of God and the tyranny of Antichrist. This is predicted in Daniel 9, Daniel 12, and basically the entire book of Revelation, 6 through 18. Now, turn back to Matthew 24, verse 3. And he, that is Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And now Jesus describes coming events in a very specific order. And we'll, we'll break it down into three. The first event we'll call tribulation. Tribulation. In verses 4 through 28, we see war on a global scale, famine, earthquakes like never before, new believers in Christ being martyred worldwide, false prophets everywhere. But also, interestingly, verse 14 the gospel will be proclaimed to every people group on earth for the first time in history. Antichrist will set himself up to be worshipped, verse 15. Jews will be running for their lives because he's coming against them, verse 16. False signs, false wonders by false prophets trying to deceive humanity. And Christ gives a warning not to believe any rumors of the return of Christ because his return will be utterly obvious. Chapter 24, verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You would be amazed how much ink has been spilled over verse 28. Entire articles written on the corpse and the vultures and the spiritual meanings and the, the metaphors and the, and the word pictures. There's no metaphor here. Ezekiel 39 says that when Christ has conquered his enemies, the birds of the air will eat the bodies of the slain. What is Jesus saying here? Don't believe rumors of my return. When you see vultures eating corpses for hundreds of miles up and down Israel, I'm back. It's very easy to see. So tribulation, the second Order of events, cosmic signs. Cosmic signs. Shortly before the return of Christ, the final outpouring of God's judgment on earth as reported in Revelation 16 will include massive cosmic signs and we get a a, a small taste of that here in chapter 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Everything we think is permanent will be coming down. And then the third order of events, tribulation, cosmic signs, third, kingdom. Kingdom is what comes next. And we've already seen this, but then comes the return of Christ and the setting up his kingdom, of his kingdom, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. So the order of events is not hard to discern. First, this happens, Jesus says. After that, this happens. And after that, this happens. Tribulation, cosmic signs, kingdom. New heavens, new earth. The great white throne judgment. The reign of Christ on earth. The return of Christ in earthly judgments. The great tribulation. What is the first era of prophetic history? The next thing we can expect to have happen. We'll call this one the rapture and resurrection of the church. 
the rapture and resurrection of the church. One of my favorite topics the last 25 minutes have just been to get us to this point. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're going to see what Paul happens next from our perspective in history right now. What happens next? 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll look at verses 14 through 18, just very briefly. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, in other words, Christians who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is a hot button in the evangelical church. On the surface, it seems a little bit far-fetched. Millions of people disappearing off the earth all at once. Sounds like the category of space aliens and conspiracy theories, doesn't it? We hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, the catching away of the church prior to the raining down of God's wrath. We'll flesh that out in a moment. Then the coming of Christ fully to earth with his saints in a completely separate event seven years later. That timeline is laid out very clearly in Daniel chapter 9. Now you'll notice that as we read the resurrection of Christians who have died and the catching away of Christians who are still alive happens at the same moment. It's a single event. The resurrection happens first and one moment later, the rapture happens. Well, we get a lot of flack for the word rapture. Well, it's just a useful word to describe this phenomenon. People will say, well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Well, the word Bible isn't in the Bible. So that doesn't prove anything. Rapture. It's just a word from this text here in verse 17. It's the Greek word harpazo. It means caught up, taken, snatched up, seized. And here it's a future form of the verb. It hasn't happened yet. And there is absolutely no wiggle room for this word. It is sudden and that person is caught up. That person has no control over it. It just happens. The English translation of the Latin translation of the Greek gives us our word rapture. So, I hate to say it, but the word rapture is in the Bible. You just have to translate it twice. It expresses suddenness. It expresses immediacy. A sudden, irresistible carrying off by force. Is it the same as you've seen in movies uh, where suddenly somebody's clothes drop to the ground and they're gone? It is sudden, but that's not what it is. And I'll tell you what it is in a bit. The, the rapture of the church, it's, it's crazy, It's wacky, it's otherworldly, it's bizarre, it seems insane, and it's a very peculiar belief that is utterly biblical. Verse 17, really from a grammatical standpoint, isn't rocket science. We just take scripture at its word. Christians who are alive at the resurrection are caught up, they're taken, they're snatched away. And just in in case anyone thinks this is just a gathering together of Christians on earth, as is often taught, Uh, Paul is clear that we're caught up together with those who are resurrected in the clouds. 
How much clearer can you be? It has the obvious meaning of the sky. It even says we'll meet the Lord in the what? The air. And from that moment on, did you catch this? We will always be with the Lord. You've never seen Jesus. Do you realize that once you do, you'll never not see him again? You'll always be with him. The time of the great tribulation that I described earlier, this is specifically and very precisely a time of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. That's very important. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are asleep, awake or asleep, we might live with him. This isn't just speaking of keeping us from wrath in general through the cross. The context of chapter 5 speaks of judgment day, that we'll be kept from that, we'll be kept from the great tribulation. As a matter of fact, there was apparently a fear among the young believers in Thessalonica. Remember, Paul had only been in this church like two or three months before he had to leave town. So they're all just little baby believers. And there was a fear among them that the judgment of God was coming or it had come already. Why would they think this? Because they were already being persecuted for their faith. And they wondered if they had missed something, if the judgment was upon them. But Paul said not to worry. It hadn't come. He tells them in 2 Thessalonians 2, it can't come because you're still here. Just turn the page to 2 Thessalonians 2. It's just a page away. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul says that day can't come until Antichrist appears. And then in 1 Thessalonians, he proceeds, or 2 Thessalonians rather, he proceeds to talk about how horrific, how terrible, how awful, how fearsome life on earth is going to be when Antichrist appears. And he says absolutely nothing about warning Christians to watch out for that day. He says nothing. 1 Corinthians 15 gives a similar description of 1 Thessalonians 4 to the rapture resurrection event. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Paul says there in that passage that this is a mystery. Well, what is the mystery? A mystery in the Bible doesn't mean it's something you can't understand. It means it's something that hasn't been previously given by God. There is no Old Testament prophecy of a rapture. Why? Because the rapture specifically concerns the church. And guess what else is a mystery in the Old Testament? The church, a Gentile people of God. It's hinted at, but it's not taught directly. 1 Corinthians 15 gives more detail about what happens to the raptured saint. We shall be changed. The perishable shall put on imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. John said it this way in 1 John 3, 2. When he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. What is the means by which we will be changed into the perfect resurrection uh, versions of ourselves? It is the view of Christ and we're changed like that. 
Paul says it this way in Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. Listen, never once in the entire New Testament is the Christian warned to grit his teeth and get ready for the day of the Lord, the day of judgment that will come upon the earth. Not one time. If we don't hold to a rapture, that means that the great tribulation must come before Christ does, and now that final generation of the church will endure the wrath of God along with the rest of the world. Now, to be very clear, During the Great Tribulation, people will get saved. We just read this earlier in Matthew's Gospel that every people group on earth will hear the Gospel for the first time ever. Countless Jews will get saved. But these saints of the Tribulation, according to Revelation 9, will be protected from God's wrathful actions. They will not be protected from persecution from evil men. It is a major theological error to confuse persecution and wrath. Wrath Never. Wrath fell on Christ at the cross. Persecution? Yes. We're promised it. Paul said every Christian gets persecuted. But if there's no rapture, you would think that out of the 7,957 verses of the New Testament, we get one that says, get ready to endure the pouring out of the wrath of God on the earth. Instead, we get 1 Thessalonians 5.18, encourage one another with these words. It's a Greek word that means high five. Kind of being a little bit stretched there. What gives us hope? It's, it's that hope that we're being taken out. I just want to hammer this home. A, a very careful distinction needs to be made between the coming of Christ to gather his saints at the rapture and the second coming of Christ seven years later. I'm going to give you a quick uh, set of observations here. At the rapture, saints meet Christ in the air. At the second coming, there's no second coming passage that mentions meeting Christ in the air. In the rapture, there's no judgment in any rapture passages. It's all blessing and joy. The second coming, it's all judgment. At the rapture, there's no mention of any establishment of an earthly kingdom because it's not happening yet. At the second coming, the second coming passages are always paired with establishing the kingdom. At the rapture, both living and dead saints receive glorified bodies. The second coming passages, no one is said to receive a glorified body right at that moment. There is one exception, Old Testament saints, Daniel 12, but that's after the tribulation. So there's a clear distinction. The rapture clearly occurs before the wrath of God. The second coming occurs after the wrath of God and during the wrath of God. The rapture is seen in Scripture as any time now. The second coming has signs to watch for. Listen very carefully. Matthew 24, Matthew 25, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, uh, all of the book of Revelation are very much designed for tribulation saints to read. Because unlike us now, they can look at Revelation 13, oh, Mark of the Beast. They can look at all the things happening in the world and do the math. 1,260 days and Christ is returning. At the rapture, the Lord returns to heaven with his saints. At the second coming, he descends to earth and stays. And at the rapture, all believers are removed from the earth for a time leaving only unbelievers. And at the second coming, all unbelievers are removed from the earth for a time leaving only believers. 
Very, very different. To confuse the two is illogical. We must let Scripture speak for itself. And I want to emphasize that last point. In the rapture passages of Scripture, the believers are taken away and the unbelievers are left. But in the second coming passages, the unbelievers are taken away while the believers are left. For example, in Matthew 24, when Jesus is telling the world what to watch for concerning the second coming, his coming all the way to the earth for for judgment is written very much for the one searching the scriptures during the great tribulation. Here's what he says. And this is very often mistaken for a rapture passage. It's not. Matthew 24, 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. What's happening there? In the context of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 24 and 25, the one taken is the unbeliever taken for judgment and death. And the one left is a believer, a tribulation saint who survived the great tribulation. Where are they taken? The sheep and the goat judgment. The idea of the rapture seems bizarre. I understand that. There are numerous other examples of raptures in the Bible, though. God never just gives us one verse and says, believe this really crazy sounding thing that nobody on earth would believe based on one verse. He never does that. Here's a few examples. Noah had a great grandfather. It's a faithful man named Enoch. Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What does that mean? Did he take him away? Did he take him to a cave? What did he do? Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. That's a rapture. In 2 Kings 2, verse 11, the prophet Elijah, quote, went up by a whirlwind into heaven, accompanied by heavenly chariots and horses of fire. Revelation 11, the two witnesses of God in the great tribulation who come in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, might actually be Moses and Elijah. They're killed and then resurrected. Revelation eleven twelve. then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And of course, our favorite example of rapture is found in Acts 1, the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Yeah, try telling Jesus there is no rapture. He's like, how do you think I left the earth? <laughs> There's several commonalities, especially between Elijah, Jesus, and the two witnesses. I told you, I would tell you, it's not that people just suddenly poof, disappear. Here's the commonalities. The rapture, the catching up, with all three of those examples, was slow enough that it could be tracked with the eye. Those still on earth, including in the case of the two witnesses, unbelievers, could see this happening. Both the two witnesses and the first Thessalonians' description of the rapture of the church speak of a voice of command, loud enough for the whole earth to hear it. Jesus and the two witnesses went with already resurrected and glorified bodies. Elijah and Enoch received glorified bodies as they went to heaven. In fact, the Greek translation of the account of Elijah in 2 Kings says that he was translated. The Greek word is metamorphosis. He was changed. The Hebrews 11 account of Enoch uses the same word, metamorphosis. So to believe that the rapture of the church is real isn't a stretch at all. There's at least four other examples than 1 Thessalonians. That, that didn't include the teaching of 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and John 14. One of the things I love about the doctrine of the rapture is how old it is. It's old. The history of the doctrine of the rapture is ancient. 
Now, among those who do not believe the doctrine of the rapture, it is widely circulated as kind of an urban theological myth that John Nelson Darby first proposed the doctrine of the rapture about 1830. Darby was one of the original Plymouth Brethren. So the claim is that the doctrine of the rapture was invented in the 1800s, and that, that means it can't be true. Well, let's see. Morgan Edwards, the founder of Brown University, the first Baptist college in the American colonies, he preached the rapture of the church from 1 Thessalonians 4, that the saints will be transformed and taken into heaven. John Gill, in his 1748 commentary on 1 Thessalonians, says that Christ will return, but he'll stay in the air. And from there, he'll take his saints to himself to the third heaven to keep them safe until after judgment. Peter Giroux, in his 1617 book, the 1687 book, rather, Approaching Deliverance of the Church, taught that the rapture of the church happens prior to Christ's coming in his full glory. Increase Mather, the first president of Harvard University, was a Puritan scholar. He taught that the church would be taken up in the air to meet the Lord to escape the final judgment. Brother Dolcino is an Italian priest who broke with the Catholic Church and he led a group called the Apostolic Brethren. Now, he's not probably somebody we would want to follow, but he did clearly teach a pre-tribulation rapture, did a very good job interpreting the book of Revelation in 1307. Because of his teaching, he was captured and mutilated and burned at the stake by the Catholic Church. So far, we're back to the 14th century. I don't have time to do a thousand years in between. Let's skip to the 4th century. Ephraim of Nisibis in the 4th century was a prominent theologian. He wrote an important sermon called On the Last Times, the Antichrist and the End of the World. He states a pre-tribulational literal taking up of the church. Cyprian of Carthage, who was eventually beheaded for his faith by the Roman government in 258. He was the bishop of Carthage to the end of his short 58-year life and in his book, Treatises of Cyprian, he wrote of Christians taking an early departure and being snatched away. When? Before the Great Tribulation. Irenaeus was the bishop of the church in Lyon, France. He was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by the Apostle John. And in Irenaeus' work, Against Heresies, he writes, quote, When in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up, Latin word, rapture, Greek word, harpazo, there shall be a tribulation such as not since been since the beginning, pre-tribulational rapture. Irenaeus was taught theology by Polycarp, who was taught by John. About the same time, the Christian work, The Shepherd of Hermas, was written sometime between 95 and 150 A.D., right at the end of the Apostle John's life. And it teaches that the true believer will escape the coming great tribulation. How? By rapture. Now, just because... Others believe something doesn't make it true, but the idea of the rapture being a recent invention is mythological. It is not recent. It goes all the way back to the apostles. Why? Because Paul wrote it. But who mentioned the rapture first? Who's the very first one? Turn to John 14. It's our Lord. It is Jesus himself. And what's the context? In John 14, Jesus is giving comfort to his disciples and by extension to all Christians of all ages. And he gives us such tremendous hope in John 14, 1 through 3. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus simply says, don't be troubled that I'm leaving. I'm coming back personally to take you to my father's house and will always be with you. This is the very first revelation of the rapture. Christ coming to take us where he is and it's so filled with compassion and love and tenderness. How will Jesus express his loyalty and his fidelity and his covenant love with those who are his? He'll express it by coming and taking you home to his father's house. New heavens, new earth. Great white throne judgment, the reign of Christ on earth, the return of Christ in earthly judgments, the great tribulation, the rapture and resurrection of the church. That brings us back to our question, are we in the end times? Now I should note again that unlike the prophetic signs that Jesus gave concerning the great tribulation, concerning the coming of Antichrist, concerning the second coming of Christ, there are no prophetic signs in Scripture, indicating when the rapture resurrection event will occur. It may feel like the world has gone crazy, and it may feel like it may be soon, but every generation of Christians has thought that. I mean, 60 years ago, Christians were saying, Christ must return soon because they've allowed chewing gum in, in school now. But God may yet have many more spiritual revivals in mind. So are we in the end times? Everybody take a breath because this answer comes in five parts. <laughs> Here they are. I'll give them to you in advance. Are we in the end times? Yes, but, and, so, amen. Yes, but, and, so, amen. Part one. Yes, we are in the end times. In the very first Christian sermon, very first sermon ever preached to the church, Peter's Pentecost sermon of Acts 2, right after the crowd of thousands had witnessed the apostles speaking in different languages, when the Holy Spirit appeared in form of tongues of fire over the apostles, and when a sound like a mighty rushing wind a crowd, uh, attracted a crowd of thousands, in this sermon, listen carefully, in the opening introductory sentence of the opening sermon of all of the church age, Peter preaches in times. He quotes from Joel Chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, and he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The, The day of Pentecost was groundbreaking because for the first time, God's people were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the church age unique. Peter cited Joel chapter 2 as being partially fulfilled. A beginning has been made. A start has been had. Because obviously we're not in a time where the Spirit of God has indwelt all flesh, are we? A time when the Spirit of God is so vitally a part of every person's life on earth. But just the fact that Peter is citing Joel 2, the last days, as beginning in the very first Christian sermon, the last days have begun. So, yes. Part 2 of the answer to the question, are we in the last days? But, but... Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and this is the last place we'll have to go together. 2 Peter 3, part 2 to the answer, are we in the last days, but 
2 Peter 3, verse 8. Might be faster to turn to 1 John and look back a page. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. We might think it can't be the last day's Pentecost was 2,000 years ago. From a heavenly perspective, that was Friday. That was the day before yesterday. Now, remember, the context of 2 Peter 3, we mentioned this earlier, is the melting down of the old earth and the heavens to recreate and redeem a new heavens and a new earth. It's in chapter 3 here in verse 11, verse 10. From a human perspective, the end times and the coming of Christ may seem far off, but from God's perspective, it's impending, it's looming, it's close. And we could even say this, even just from our perspective, the fact that Peter said, we're in the last days, and he said it 2,000 years ago. That means the clock has been ticking for a long time. So are we in the last days? Yes, but, third part to our answer, and. And the New Testament confirms that we are to think of every day of our lives as being in the last days. That the rapture of the church, the next event in prophetic history could take place anytime. We, we say this often here. Maybe this will be our last Sunday here. Kind of want to see one Sunday in White Lane, but we'll take, uh, we'll take Christ any day. Remember, when Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. He was not speaking of the current church age. The context of the great tribulation after the rapture of the church. This is the Christian myth that in this current age, Christ will not bring about the end of all things until the gospel has been presented to every people group. That's not the case. The rapture of the church can happen anytime and there's not one prophetic sign to look for. Listen to the New Testament writers and you be the judge as to whether or not we're in the last days. Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. James in James 5, 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. When did the last days begin? When God gave the ultimate revelation of himself, Jesus Christ. The clock started ticking. Or how about Jesus himself? What are the last words of Jesus in the Bible? Surely I am coming Eventually? Soon. Are we in the last days? Yes, but, and. Fourth part, so. So what do we do with this knowledge? Short answer is we live every day like this is the last one. Remember that Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. He says, therefore. And then he says, serve in the church with all of your heart. Remember that James says in James 5, 8, that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here's the fuller context. Be patient. Establish your hearts. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, do you want your last act on this earth potentially to be you complaining and gossiping and moaning and groaning and, oh, look, there's Jesus. You don't want that. Remember that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1-2 said, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. 
All of Hebrews 1 keeps us waiting. It's all extolling the virtues of the Son of God that finally in chapter 2, verse 1, we get to a therefore. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Pay attention to the Word of God. So what is the so? According to Peter, Peter, so serve with all your might in the church. According to James, so work hard at your sanctification. And according to the writer of Hebrews, pay attention to the word of God and the gospel. Along the same lines, are we in the last days? Yes, but so and. What about the fifth part to the answer? Amen. Here in 1 Peter 3, remember the context. We've already seen in verse 10 that we expect the old earth and heavens to pass away. That's not a word that means to be destroyed. It means to, to move on. And to be burned up, it's a word that means to be melted down to get the impurities out. So we hold to a redemption view of the new heavens and new earth, not a destruction view. It's a redemption and remaking, not an annihilation. But that little fact aside, remember that the end, of, that the end times, the end of all things, is the context. So what are we to do? What are we to do? First, earnestly pray for the lost. Earnestly pray for the lost. Second Peter 3, 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Aren't you glad Christ didn't return a hundred years ago? The all should reach repentance here cannot mean all humanity since a hell exists. The all means all the elect. And so to put it this way, yes, we hope for and we pray for the return of Christ to be soon, but not before he brings in every one of his elect. Earnestly pray for the lost. What else do we do? Aggressively pursue Christ's likeness. Aggressively pursue Christ's likeness. Chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? This is a simple, simple question. You know your two to three biggest sin tendencies. At what point do you put on the spiritual boxing gloves and say, since today might be the last day before I see Christ face to face, I'm going to fight these with all of my heart. At what point do you sit down with those closest to you and say, what are the two or three things I need to be fighting with all of my heart? Why would I do that, you might ask, for the same reason you clean your house right before company comes? This is not to earn your salvation. It is to be holy and pure before your Savior as as much as is possible in this sinful state before you see Him. What else do we do? Longingly look for God's judgment. Longingly look for God's judgment. This is not preached often. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Peter writes almost as if our own desire can hasten. It means to speed up the coming day of God, the day of melting down of the current creation. And you remember what happens immediately following that? The great white throne judgment. We're to long for the retribution of God. We're to long for the justice of God. We're to long for the judgment of God. And you say, well, that's not very loving. No, that's very biblical. What else do we do? Eagerly wait for a righteous world. Eagerly wait for a righteous world. Verse 13, I know eagerly wait sounds like an oxymoron, but that's what we're called to do. 
But according to his promise, verse 13, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If you can grasp how glorious our current sinful creation is, if you take to heart Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God, then you can certainly use your sanctified imagination to just guess how glorious his new creation and his new sinless earth is going to be. But listen, the, the glory of new creation, as magnificent as it's going to be, is not Peter's focus here. His primary focus is that on new earth is where righteousness dwells. That it will be sin-free, guilt-free, pain-free, sorrow-free, worry-free, weeping-free, anguish-free, disappointed-free, disappointment-free. Do you realize that there will be a day when you don't live by faith anymore? Everything is by sight. Imagine the relief of the suffering Christian running through the fields of new earth and down the streets of new Jerusalem, dancing down the streets. Imagine the relief of the Christian whose life has been filled with pain and questions and disappointment, breathing in the never-disappointment atmosphere of perfection and holiness and total happiness in the Lord. Imagine the relief of every elderly believer who has faithfully lived decades in the Lord with his body slowly breaking down with every passing year, flexing his new resurrection muscles, functioning with perfect ease and heavenly strength and vigor for which God originally created him. What else do you do? Firmly grasp the secret of contentment. Firmly grasp the secret of contentment. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be found, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The peace here speaks of the genuine peace of mind that comes from a confident faith. The peace that can only come from knowing that your sins are forgiven, that your future is secured. And that no matter how terrible human history seems, and more importantly, no matter how terrible your history seems, that all you have to do is look down the corridor of time and smile because Jesus said, surely I am coming soon. A Christian who doesn't learn eschatology, I don't know how you get through every day, honestly. What else should you do? This is very, very near to our hearts. Confidently expect the church to increase. Confidently expect the church to increase. Verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote. That every day that God waits to bring the end of all things is one more day that Christ is building his church. We should expect the church universal to grow and we should prayerfully expect that the local church will grow. Why else are we here? We should expect new citizens. What else do we do? Purposefully grow in grace and knowledge. Verse 17, purposefully growing in grace and knowledge. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In what manner? As if today is the last day. If I could put it this way, if you're at Grace Bible Church and you're not growing, I don't know what to tell you, except it's like somebody starving to death in front of a fully stocked refrigerator. And what's the last thing you do? Resolutely do all to the glory of Christ. You resolutely do all to the glory of Christ. The end of verse 18, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. I have a simple question. Is what I'm doing right now glorifying to Christ and indicative of my salvation? 
Is what I'm doing right now glorifying to Christ? If the answer is yes, keep doing it. If the answer is no, stop doing it. So are we in the end times? Well, we're told, earnestly pray for the lost, aggressively pursue Christ's likeness, longingly look for God's coming judgment, eagerly wait for a righteous world, firmly grasp the secret of contentment, confidently expect the church to increase, purposefully grow in grace and knowledge, and resolutely do all to the glory of Christ. And how does Peter end this series of commands to the, the call here to eagerly look to what he calls the day of eternity? He says the Hebrew word for so be it. Let it be, he says, amen. Let that sink in. Are we in the last days? Yes, but there is work to do, right? There's work to do. So be it. Let it be. Amen. Our Father, we come to you now astounded by the clarity of your word. We ask you, God, as a church to make us faithful to these things that we would pray for the lost that we would pursue Christ's likeness that we would longingly look for your coming judgment that we would eagerly wait for that righteous world to come that we would be joyful filled with contentment that we would expect you to do a great work in the church of increasing the number of saints that we would purposefully grow in the grace of knowledge of Christ through the word of God and that we would resolutely do all to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the time that we have had here at Young Street. But we move forward, Lord, and we move on asking you and thanking you to do a great and mighty work with us. May we endeavor to be faithful until that day when Christ returns and takes us home. What a glorious day that will be. In the meantime, give us the faith to endure. And to be faithful, we pray in Christ's name, amen.